Hello, hello. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Oh, it's a Saturday. It's a beautiful day. Um, coffee's hot and tasty. It's good. Mm. I like it. I like it. How's everybody doing this morning? We all ready for this? Because this is a, wow, this is a big study. This is a deep study today. <clears throat> Not to mention, you know, First John by itself is a rather intense study all on its own. But today we're getting into some some meat that is, uh, let's just say, it's, it's difficult to teach. It's not difficult to teach, but it is, it is because John has a tendency to be very direct, very cut and dry, very straight and to the point, and with some pretty broad terms. So, so we got to do some clarifying and figure out what's really going on. So, Hey, good morning. So, uh, it's a, it's a good study today is really, really good. Uh, but it is going to be intense. So I hope you are ready. Have your Bibles ready. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a good one. I hope your, your coffee is strong and delicious as well. So, all right, well, shall we, shall we just dig into this? Let's do it. All right, so we're going through uh, chapter two, verse twenty-eight, all the way to verse th- or chapter three, verse ten. Um, it's not a it's not a huge huge sections for us, but uh, it's it's got a lot of a lot of depth to it. So here we go. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning is also practices, excuse me, also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. And as he is righteous, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Wow, that's some... uh, that's some condemning stuff. And there's some clarifying that we need to do that we're going to be doing throughout this. Uh, this is one of those 
somewhat elusive sections that because of how direct John is, people tend to take some of this wildly out of context. So we're, we're going to be looking at, at that as we go through this. Okay, this breaks down into two basic sections. We see t- verse 28 to verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 3, God's children. And then from 4 to 10, we get to v- debate lawlessness or the seed of God. Okay, we're looking at the differences between lawlessness and the seed of God. Let's look at this. Verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Okay. I've got a bit here for this one. First of all, he's, uh, as he's been doing all along through this, he kind of bounces back, right? He kind of bounces back between concepts. So if we look back at uh, earlier in chapter 2, verse uh, 24 to 27, so right before this, we see in, in 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, okay? Let it Let that abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father, Okay, and then he goes on and says some other things. But keeping this in context of what he's been saying, and it's only a few verses away, so it's not like it's not a, a drastic bounce like we've seen, but it is. He's coming back into that concept again. But he's going, okay, let what you heard from the beginning, let that truth abide in you. And now he's taking it to you abide in the truth, okay, into Jesus, because God cares how we live our life, right? God does care how we live. And so we must let that truth live through us, okay? And show that with our lives, okay? Now notice the notice the direction this goes. He says, let it live in you and then you live in it. He's not saying you, you commit yourself fully and then gradually God gives it to you. He says, no, God approaches you, let that seep into you, as you then live for God, okay? Now, the we is something that is very interesting because here in the United States, we have a tendency to take things very personally. And so our faith is very personal and independent, right? We are very independent people. And we know that for salvation, uh, like family line salvation isn't really a thing, right? Just because you're born into a Christian family, that doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. You still have to accept Jesus on your own terms, right? And so we take that to the nth degree, which causes some issues. Salvation is independent. Yes. God approaches each of us independently. We have the opportunity to accept or deny. That is our call. That is ours. Once we are part of the body of God, once we are part of that kingdom, things are much more intertwined than that, okay? Notice here, abide in him so that when he appears, we, you abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. That's a lot. That's a lot. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For what is our hope or our joy 
or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So we get to boast about them. Okay, interesting. Let's look at 2 Corinthians. Just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Okay, because we get to, it's intertwined, right? It's very intertwined. We get to talk well about and boast of these other people, other parts of the body of Christ. Okay, Everybody says, well, what, you know, an eye or a tongue. Well, that's fantastic. And the eye is a great thing. But without an optical nerve, it does nothing. It just sits there and floats around. You can have some muscles or muscles to move it. You can look in one direction, but you can't do much with that. You got to turn your head. Well, without the head, the eye doesn't do much, right? It's all interconnected. Okay, we have an opportunity to boast of each other right? Because of the great things that, man, okay, God, this was fantastic, but I couldn't have done this without so-and-so, without this, right? It is a very interconnected thing. And we see that here. John understood that, and he brings that out in a very subtle way, but in saying it in a reverse mindset so that we don't have to shrink away. So if there's good and we're boasting, it looks like there's also a potential of shame and guilt. God, yeah, this didn't go as planned. Man, I feel really bad. You know, as a pastor, it can get really nasty. Like we're held accountable for things that the people under us do, right? If we if we bless certain things and we feel God's in it and we do things, we're held to a different standard and we can be held accountable for how things happen with people underneath us. So when we see this, he says, we can have confidence and that we do not shrink away in shame from that. Okay, we're with this why we hold each other accountable. We help each other out so we can say this has been good instead of that person brought shame to us all. Okay, it is a family thing. It is a huge thing. Okay. Now the shame is is meaning ashamed. It really is. That is the word that they use here is shame. Um, and he's saying that many will shrink away from Christ when he returns, embarrassed at how they live. Now, I'm saying here either in a doctrinal stance or in a living situation, and I say this because of the actual context of what John's been writing. John has been writing uh, in regards to protognostics and to Gnostics and to false teachings, this group of people who were inside the body of Christ, they were in the church, and then they left to go teach other things, right? So because of that, might be embarrassed because of doctrinal stances, something that they started teaching that wasn't accurate. Uh, and Jesus comes back and it becomes clear, or in their how they live their lives. Okay. Look at 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, the he and him here is Jesus. Okay. If you know that he, Jesus, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is one of those verses that can be pulled very, very, very out of context. Okay. You hear people, well, you know, how can you say that people are naturally bad? I see good people all over the place and in, in all sorts of different religions and groups and secular people, people, atheists. I've seen really nice and awesome atheists. How does this work? And then you can pull from here and say, well, according to this, anyone who's righteous 
obviously is of God. Oh, okay, so I don't have to necessarily accept Jesus then, because as long as I'm a righteous person, I'm already from God, right? Wrong. That's not what this is saying. We have to read these things in context. Context is so critical in this. Now, remember, this is a letter. This is an epistle. This is a letter written to a specific group, but then shared around to the different churches in the region, right? Okay. So this letter was written for a specific reason. If we look at who he was writing to and why he was writing, he was writing against a group of people who were inside the church, then got some wacky concepts, took that to the nth degree, left the church to go and teach these wacky concepts and live life apparently in a very awkward and ungodly way and to teach some very ungodly principles, things that go against the gospel. Now, if we take this verse in the context of the actual letter and read it with knowing this is written to believers inside of a church regarding people who have claimed to be Christian, still claim to be Christian, but have left and are now teaching something really weird. Now, when we read this verse, if you know that he is righteous, Jesus is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Christ, born of him. This is not a reference to people outside of the body or people who claim to be outside of the body. This is directly referring to people who claim to be believers of Jesus Christ. Okay, take this in context. It is for people who claim Jesus, not others. Okay, so here we see God is righteous. Okay, he is righteous. If you know that he, God, Jesus, right, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is showing family lineage. Okay, we see this, this big ring, truth. Let that truth abide in you. You now abide in that truth. Now we see if you know God is righteous, be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of that. We see this family lineage starting to form. Okay, they know that you are your father's child if you are like your father. Okay, how many times do we say, man, I can't believe I just heard my mother or my father come out of my mouth. I made this dish the same way that my parents used to always make it, right? Or, man, you look just like your dad or your mom. Well, is it because of your bone structure? Or is it because of the smile, the way you laugh, the way you do things? Is it stuff that you've learned, right? Is it stuff that comes from it? They know your family, like what family you come from based on who you act like, right? And so if you claim to be part of God's family, they're going to know it if you live like godly lives, right? Okay, this makes sense. Now, he's not saying this uh, believers are sinless. No, no, no. And we, we get to that here in a little bit. But he know, but saying that uh, that they are known for how they live and how they respond. Okay. Then we see into chapter three, beginning of chapter three. See what kind of love the father, father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Okay, New King James, I love how New King James starts this chapter. Behold, bam, it is a behold. 
look at this. Stand back in amazement at the amount of love that God has for us, that we get to be called children of God, but not just called children, that we are children of God. God adopts us and he gives us full birthrights. Full birthrights. Not only is that hardly heard of today in our cultured society, but that was really less than heard of. It was like not something that really happened then. Aside from someone pulling in a child from um, like a brother's family all died, and so they bring their family in, and and I couldn't have kids, and so I have to give my stuff to somebody else, so I'm going to give it down the family line to my brother's kid because my brother died, and he does nothing to give him now. Aside from situations like that, adoption with full birthrights was very rare. You didn't really see that. And so to say... God says we're his children and we are his children. We're not just adopted. He brings us into the fold completely. We are his kids. He loves us as full children of his. He's saying a very big thing. And then he says that we need to recognize something. The world doesn't recognize him and they're not going to recognize us. They don't recognize us because they didn't recognize him, right? They don't recognize who God is. And they're not going to recognize us. They, they doubted Jesus. So it makes sense that they're going to doubt us as being part of God's family if they don't recognize that Jesus is God. This is just plain and simple, right? Then we go on in verse 2. Beloved. Notice this change right here. This one word, Beloved. And listen to the tone that happens. And it's something that's very natural. And it's something that you don't notice necessarily when you read it in your head. But when you read it out loud, something becomes a little bit more clear here. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. Beloved, we are God's children now. Wow. When it says little children, yes, we notice and we know that he is addressing all believers. He's addressing the whole church, right? But it also comes off very preachy and very, I'm talking to you, now get it straight. But then he turns and he says, beloved, and the mood completely changes. And he goes from this on a pedestal speaking and preaching to a, I am here talking really close, we're having a sip of coffee or tea or whatever. And I want to talk to you because I love you. You are family. We, we need to get together. We need to get this understood. So let's, let's, let's bash this out, but let's do it with love, right? Let's do this together. And he just changes the mood from a preaching sermon to a letter, an intimate letter. Beloved, we are God's children now. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. All those he's and him's are Jesus, okay? He's talking about our glorified bodies, okay? He's talking about when Jesus returns and when we're in heaven, how our full, new, perfected, glorified bodies will be. We don't know. He's saying there's still mystery there. Nobody's seen it yet. We don't know what that's going to look like. Jesus hasn't returned. 
but we but we still know that we have this hope. It's a promise. And we know that it's coming. And we know it's going to be really good. We know there's no more pain. There's no more sin. There's no more illness. There's no more of any of this. Okay, that's what he's talking about. And then verse three, he wraps this section up, this God's children section up with, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Okay, so that he at the end is Jesus. Anybody who hopes in him, Jesus purifies himself, oneself, as he, Jesus, is pure. Okay, so this we see Romans 15. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. In 2 Corinthians 7, therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Okay, so he's saying that there is a natural transformation, that the Spirit then puts something in us that creates a desire for us to purify ourselves and to get ourselves ready. The Spirit sanctifies us, starts transforming us, and puts something in us to where we know we need to, and we we get this desire to start to purify ourselves, and we work at it alongside with the Spirit. Okay, this is what he's saying. Everyone who hopes in Jesus starts to purify himself. Now, remember, he's writing this letter, but he changed it from very preachy. Now it's very intimate. And he's writing this letter, warning against and, and reassuring the church that they're still on the right path. And that this group of people who are out now teaching awkward things that are not part of the gospel, that they left for a reason and God was doing a holy subtraction to protect the body right? Saying that that's not of him. And he's letting them know, hey, it's okay. They're going and they're now living in sin and they're living in, in habitual sin, but you're not because we know that if you know Jesus and you're looking for him, you are looking to purify and you're working for purifying your body. This is something that naturally happens, okay? Context is huge. Context is huge here. We change into the lawlessness or the seed of God, okay? Verse four, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, I want to notice, I want you to notice something here. This is a practice. Practice of sinning also practices, excuse me, practices lawlessness. This is not an accidental sin. This is a pattern of sinning. Okay. When you want to get really good at something, what do you do? You practice it. This is a constant sinning. This is saying, this is not only okay, but I like it so much, I want to get good at it. And so I am going to continue and pursue this. I love this so much, I want to be even better at this. That's what he's referring to. It's an ongoing, a continual sinning, saying it's fine. It's good. God's got to be okay with this because it is good kind of thing, right? Or, yeah, the Bible says it's wrong and it's a sin and I shouldn't do this, but God made me this way anyway, so it doesn't matter. It's fine. That is what he's talking about here, is a practice of sinning. 
continually. We see Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I brought that in here so that to notice it's not a single sin. We do sin. We sin, we make mistakes. This is not an accidental sin. It's not a, oops, crap, I can't believe I did that. God, forgive me. I, I'm trying really hard. Just take that from me. I don't want to continue making this mistake. Not that kind of sin. Okay. Now the word lawlessness here in Greek is anomia. And this is, is to either be without law, AKA in this case would be ignorance or to flat out violate the law. Okay. So he's, he's saying that they're either in ignorance, claiming ignorance, at least of, I don't really think it's wrong. So I'm going with it anyway, or to just flat out violate it. And again, say, yeah, it's wrong, but it's okay. I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. We see Romans 4.15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And I love Paul for this. So great. How he points out that the whole point of the law is so that we know we're doing wrong. It's not to make it to where we're perfected through it because we're not, we can't be. It just proves that we're so bad. We have to have a savior, right? We can't measure up. We need Jesus. The whole point of the law. Okay. So we see in verse five, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him, Jesus, there is no sin. Okay. Jesus came to forgive sin and to remove the bondage that sin has on us. Okay. Sin has a tight hold and he removes that bondage. So it's not just to forgive, right? But to take that bondage from us. If he was speaking merely of forgiveness, he would say forgiveness, but in order to take that bondage away. Okay. And we're, we go look, go back a little bit. Chapter one, verse nine, we see if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to clean, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to take that from us. We see in uh, the gospel of John chapter eight, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Okay. It is a bondage. It is a slave. You are a slave to that. Okay. And he came to break those chains and to free us from that. And clearly there is no sin in Jesus, right? Okay. Jesus was sinless. God does not promote sin, right? That just would be counterproductive. It's very awkward. So verse six, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Okay. Again, this is pushing habitual. He keeps hitting this point. It is not just a one-time, oops, I did it again kind of thing. It is a, I like it. I'm going to continue it. Okay. Let's look at Titus, which is somewhere that we don't get pulled from a ton. And I don't know why Titus has got some great stuff in it. Titus chapter two, for the grace of God has been, excuse me, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, not uptight, upright and godly lives in the present age. Okay. I'm going to read that section one more time. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, 
upright. Again, not uptight. Pull the stick out. Upright and godly lives in the present age. Upright does not mean pompous. Okay. In fact, I would encourage people, write that verse down. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. This is something we should be meditating and pondering on a lot. That we are to train. God is training us to renounce ungodliness. This is not a necessarily, most of the time it's not. Some people it is, like curative drug addiction. It happens. But for most of us, the sanctification is a process. And God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, not loving of sports, not loving of things that are fine, but of sin nature, the lusts and the idolatry and things of that degree, okay? The major issues, okay, to renounce these ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, okay? I wouldn't write that down. Okay. No one who abides in him keeps sinning, right? To be touched, right? No one who keeps sinning has either seen him or known him. Okay. Uh, to be touched by the spirit, the Holy Spirit is to be changed. You can't really know Jesus. And this is the point that he's getting to with this. You can't know Jesus and stay the same. I don't think that's possible. You can claim Jesus and stay the same. That's really easy because if you just claim Jesus, nothing's going to change. But if you know Jesus, if you have that actual relationship with Jesus, things change. You change. You can't stay the same. Okay, let's look at Matthew chapter 10. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Hmm. So Titus says that he's training us to renounce this and to live self-controlled lives. Jesus flat out says, anybody who's not going to take his own cross and follow me isn't worthy of me to begin with. So you can't just claim me, is what Jesus is saying. You can't just say me and claim me. You, you got to earn it. Like you don't have to earn salvation. No, but if you want to live that life, you there's portions to this that actually need activity. There are portions of life that are hard. You can't just say, I want Jesus, but I want to do everything else my way. That's not how this works. You have to give. You have to work at this, okay? You don't have to work for salvation, but you do have to work at the rest of your life. Okay, God changes you. You have to accept that. Okay, verse seven. Little children. Now he's gone back. Notice this. He went back from this really sweet, innocent, passionate, you know, very personal portion. And now he's back to this preaching stance again. Little children, let no one deceive you. Okay. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Again, in the context of whoever's claiming Jesus, not just people of the world, period. Okay. The Antichrist, plural, Antichrists, claim to know God. Okay. We saw that earlier in, in chapter two, right? Last week, the Antichrists claim to know God. They claim to know Jesus, but they do not live righteously. Clearly, there were things that they were doing that was outside of how Jesus and how the Holy Spirit teaches that we should live, 
okay? Saying godly people live godly lives in godly ways. Sinning against God and others, this happens, okay? He's not saying that this doesn't happen, right? We do sin. But godly people own it and they take action to make things right. That's the difference, okay? That there is a key difference in making things right. If you are ungodly, you can just sin and be like, whatever, it's fine. Sorry, and walk away. That's not repentance. Repentance is not just sorry. It's let's right this wrong. Let me turn from this. God, forgive me. Thank you for your grace and mercy, but let me change. Help me change and help me stop doing this. What can I do to right this wrong? Okay, and if you sin against another person, what can you do to hold yourself accountable to right the wrong? Instead of just saying, sorry, or, you know what? Deal with it. We've heard that a lot, right? Number eight. Number. (laughs) Verse eight. Uh, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Okay, again, practice, practice, practice. He's hounding at this. Making sure that we don't take this as sin every now and then on accident. He's saying, if it is a habitual pattern in your life, if you continue to do this and say it's good and it's well, or even if you say it's not good and well, but you live like it's good and well, that's what he's talking about. Okay. Practice of sinning is from the devil. That's what he's saying. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. We see Mark 8, 31 to 33. It's a little, couple verses. Um, and he began to teach them that the son of man, that Jesus was teaching them that the son of man, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Man, I love Peter. <laughs> you got to have, I, I don't know that this is, like the best way to phrase this, but I, it's just the only way I can think of this. You've got to have some cojones to sit there and say, Hey, teacher, who, by the way, is the savior of the world. How dare you say these things? Like (laughs) there's a reason Jesus said, you are the rock that this is going to be built on because he was bold. He was strong and he was bold because you have to be seriously bold to rebuke your teacher as an unlearned man to rebuke your teacher who is the savior of all things. (laughs) That's a bold thing to do, right? So he rebukes him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That also takes a little bit of context. Remember, the Jews were looking for a leader, a military leader. They were looking for power. So when the Messiah, the the, uh, the Christ in Greek or the Messiah in Hebrew came and said, hey, follow me. And they realized this is who this is. We get to follow this guy. We're going to get seated in seats of power. We're going to be rich. We're going to be in authority. We're going to have all this great stuff. Awesome. And then Jesus says, by the way, all the chief 
the the elders, the chief priests, they're going to call me a liar. They're not going to believe me and they're going to kill me. But to prove it, after three days, I'm coming back to life. And Peter pulls him aside like, whoa, dude, don't. No, 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 no. You can't. No, 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 no. That is not what the Messiah is here for. And Jesus sees in his heart and says, whoa, get behind me, Satan. You are looking at what you want with man eyes. You are looking for power. You are looking for money. You are looking for fame. You are not looking at the salvation of souls for everyone. Everyone who accepts me is the salvation. That is why I am here. Not for that. Okay. And so if we are looking for what the world says we should want, this is coming from the devil because the devil is the ruler of the world, right? The God of the world is the devil. Now, I know we're, we're running a little long, so I'm going to hurry up here. Sorry, guys. But we see that the reason of this, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This reason mirrors what we see in verse 5, which he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. But it pushes even harder at this, stating that the sin is the works of the devil, and Jesus came here to break the works of the devil, period. He pushes even harder at that point. We see in verse 9, excuse me. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Again, practice, practice, practice. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. Born of God, we're going to look at John 3, 3. So the gospel of John chapter 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, you have to be born again to see this. Okay, now this practice of sinning, again, it's habitual, it's purposeful, it's saying God's got to accept it anyway, it's fine, I'm forgiving, it doesn't matter, I'm just going to continue doing what I want, okay? This practice of habitual sinning, it's purposeful, okay? Now, God's seed, God's seed abides in him. No one can continue doing this because God's seed abides in him. Now, there's multiple different things people say that the seed could be. The seed could be Jesus. The seed could be God's word. It could be the gospel. It could be the Holy Spirit. It could be any number of things, right? But the point is they all really work together in this context. I think it's probably the gospel, God's word, the Holy Spirit. They're all inside of you, right? The Holy Spirit is in you. God's word is in you. God has written his law on your heart right? Okay. So they all work together in this context that God's nature is inside of you and it is in battle with the worldly and the sinful and the devil nature inside of you. Okay. God's nature versus the sin nature are at a constant battle. Paul talks about this a lot. Um, and then, but being born of God indicates you've chosen a side, right? Because you have to pick. So, you have chosen God's side. So if you have chosen God's side, you're choosing not to obey this side and you are working with God's side to take over and to push out the, the sin and the worldly side. And so you can't say, I choose God's side, but then live in the sin side camp. Not how it works. You're not a spy. Don't lie to yourself. You're not a spy trying to spy on the sin camp. Like, oh, let's just see how bad it is over here. I can report back. No, that's not how it works. Okay. Okay. Verse 10, wrapping this up, 
By this, it is evident who are the children of God, who are the children and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Again, keep in context. This is not saying people around the world everywhere or for any belief system. I mean, it does mean everywhere around the world, but it doesn't mean belief system. This is for people who claim Jesus, right? People of the kingdom of God, people who claim to be part of the kingdom of God, children of God, show their lineage, being part of God's family, right? By practicing righteousness, not practicing sin. And while children of the devil continue to live in that sin. And then John finishes this up, this section up, with pointing to the true test. You're going to know by how they love one another, especially those who don't love them back. Okay. And he says, nor is this, nor is the one who does not love his brother. If we claim to love Jesus, we need to love everyone who claims to love Jesus. This is a really, really hard task because we get hurt. We, it's painful, right? It's hard. Relationships are hard. They're not easy. So we get hurt. Uh, things are done in a way we don't appreciate or we don't agree with, but we still love the person. We might have an issue, but we're going to go and we're going to work things out with them and continue on. These people left and they apparently left in a way that says, we hate you people. We're going to start something completely different to put you under, right? And then started living ungodly lives. Okay. So that's appears to be what was going on. Now, what can we take away from this? A few things. First of all, oh, there we go. We are God's children. And as such, we should live in a way that we won't be ashamed when Christ returns, right? We need to live in a righteous lifestyle and live in a way that when Jesus comes back, we can boast about our brothers and our sisters, and not be ashamed and run away, right? We need to be not proud of ourselves, but boasting of one another, saying, we've done what we could. And this person did an amazing job, okay? And we need to realize how amazing and wonderful it is that God loves us and how amazing and wonderful his love, period, is towards us, that he accepts us, that he adopts us as children, but then goes, takes it the next step further and says, you're not just adopted. You're not even adopted anymore. You are my child and gives full birthrights. We see that Jesus came to forgive our sins and to remove our bondage from sin, to continue to live in purposeful Sin, should say, sorry, to live, continue to live in purposeful sin is to give question to one's being in the kingdom, okay? That this does give an actual, honest question. We can question this. If you're struggling in this, now that doesn't mean that we question our love for these people. It doesn't mean that we question if we help them and we do things for them. It is a personal question. If we continue to struggle in this, have I really accepted Jesus? Have I really given myself over to God? Okay. And to, uh, wow. A couple things here. And to be mindful and to watch for fruit. Just because someone claims Jesus doesn't mean that all live by and with Jesus. Okay. So the first section there is that it's something for us that we can look at our lives and say, man, I'm really struggling here. 
did I really give myself? Well, I did. God, please take this part from me, right? Or if we're going to sit there and say, God clearly doesn't care, that's something to where we really question about ourselves. And at the next step, it is something that we can be mindful for as well. Now, remember, he was talking about leaders. This was teachers, people going out, claiming something completely different, teaching something completely different. So watch for the fruit. And just because someone claims Jesus doesn't mean that Jesus isn't going to say, away from me, I never knew you. Okay? Doesn't mean that they live by and that they live with Jesus. There's a difference between claiming Jesus and having that relationship with Jesus. Okay? So we need to be mindful and watch the fruit in people's lives and see. And that includes ourselves. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you again so much for today. It has been an absolutely beautiful day. This has been an amazing study so far. God, and thank you for everything. It's it's deep. It's in depth. Uh, I know I'm getting a lot out of it and growing a lot through this. And I hope and pray that everyone else is as well. God, just thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And giving us clues that we can look at and we can tell things that are going on in our lives and things that are going on in other lives that we can help with, okay? That we can seek you and have you change us and ask you to change us and work with us, that we can work on on living in a righteous way and having a righteous lives ourselves, and that we can also watch for false teachers, God, giving us signs and giving us clues about that. Father, thank you so much and just continue to bless us and be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, hey, I hope you had a good lesson. You enjoyed it. I enjoyed having you here. Have a great Saturday and a great weekend. God bless.